Oral questions by members? Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The NDP continually display a cavalier attitude when it comes to extreme events in our province and the challenges that British Columbians might face. During the heat dome alone, almost 600 frail elderly British Columbians died. And what did the Premier say? And I quote, fatalities happen. And when British Columbians were getting swamped over the weekend, the government didn't do anything again. The Premier's response was disappointing. It's, and I quote, it gets wet in November, he said, as if his government had absolutely no clue what was happening in our province. Well, Washington State certainly did, and in fact, Alberta did. And guess what they did as a result of that? They told their residents. They actually warned them, but not in British Columbia. Can the minister stand up today and explain exactly why this government continually fails to warn British Columbians when they are potentially in imminent danger? Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thank you, uh, Honourable uh, Speaker, and I thank the, uh, the member uh, for the question. Uh, I can tell the, uh, the member that there was significant uh, work uh, on the weekend of the, uh, the storm uh, that came through, an unprecedented storm, the likes of which we have never seen uh, in this province, uh, dropping uh, more than a month's worth of rain in the space of, uh, of 24, 48 hours. Uh, I can tell you that the, uh, the that Drive BC, for example, was updated on a regular basis. Notifications about stream flow advisories provided to local communities. Uh, flood warnings uh, issued. The highway signs uh, about uh, weather conditions. At the same time, crews uh, were out dealing with the potential trouble areas, uh, both in terms of local communities, uh, but also on our provincial highways. Um, we were in contact, uh, I was in contact uh, with Bill Blair uh, when the scope of the challenges that uh, were, were seen in terms of the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the slides that occurred, uh, in many cases uh, in areas that had never experienced them uh, before. Uh, the, uh, the, the Joint uh, Rescue Coordination Centre uh, came into action to, uh, to, to, uh, to get the cormorant helicopters, search and rescue crews were motivated. There was a lot of work done, Honourable Speaker. Uh, obviously, an event after this, uh, there will be lessons learned. And as I've uh, told the House uh, on a number of occasions, uh, there's work in terms of legislation to ensure that uh, as we experience more of these uh, climate, climate change-related events, that we have an even better ability uh, to deal with them. Leader of the Official Opposition, Supplemental. Well, thank you very much. And let's be perfectly clear. This isn't about the men and women who are working tirelessly, hour after hour, day after day, out on our roads across British Columbia trying to keep people and property and communities safe. It is not about them, and the minister knows it. This is about leadership, and this is about the need for British Columbians to have information. And the minister knows where that's supposed to start. It's supposed to start at the top. 
At the end of June, almost 600 frail elderly British Columbians lost their lives in a heat wave. While the government was, to use the Premier's words again, and I quote, a bit giddy, a bit jolly, end quote. And the minister can shake her head all she wants. That is what the Premier of British Columbia said to British Columbians. Those families are still grieving their loss and waiting for answers from this government. Then, as wildfires ravaged our province, the government was nowhere to be found. They had to be shamed into calling a state of emergency in British Columbia. Now, as storms lashed our province, despite what the minister outlined, the NDP were nowhere to be seen for days. People didn't know the risk, and the minister can tout the use of Drive BC. There were thousands of British Columbians who needed information from this minister and this government, and they got nothing. So can the minister stand up and tell us specifically why he and his government failed to give British Columbians adequate notice about the risk they were facing? Minister of Public Safety. Uh, thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I thank the, uh, the member uh, for her question. Um, I want to address a number of points that she raised uh, in her question, because as I've said, there is significant uh, work underway that was undertaken during an unprecedented storm that was far more severe than even the experts expected. And I can tell you that, as I've outlined already, whether it is search and rescue, whether it is EMBC kicking into action, all those levels of government were, in fact, on the job doing what they were supposed to do. Members, whether it is EMBC, whether it is transportation, uh, crews on transportation and highways, whether, members, whether it is ensuring that local governments are supplied with the information that they need. That's take, that was taking place. The member also mentions an issues around states of emergency. Then she will also know. She will also know that states of emergency are put in place. I take the advice. Please continue. Are put in place on advice of the experts who are dealing with the situation. You know, honourable speaker. The member stands up and asks in all seriousness a question, and I am trying to give her a serious answer. She may want to heckle, she may not want to hear that, but I know British Columbians, but I know many British Columbians do. Members, and we heard the question, now it's time for answer. Yeah, please stay quiet while the answer is given. Continue, Minister. And a state of emergency, as I said, based on advice that I receive from my ministry and other ministries on what is required to deal with the situation. Because I know that member knows, and I know other members on that side of the House know, that a state of emergency does not prevent or, 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 or give you any additional resources at that time. The key element it does, the key element it does, it allows you to deal with situations going forward such as what we are facing with the rebuilding uh, of a lot of the infrastructure. And as we announced yesterday, uh, that there will be orders coming 
from that and flowing from that decision to put in place that state of emergency. Member for Kamloops, South Thompson. Oh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the members of the official opposition are not questioning the incredible work of first responders, local government officials, EMBC, the Ministry of Transportation, and others. We're not questioning their leadership. With all due respect to this minister, we're questioning the leadership, the lack of leadership on the part of this minister and the part of this government in keeping British Columbians safe in the face of a disaster. Now, whether uh, we're talking about hospitalizations or talking about road hazards, uh, this government is failing when it comes to sharing critical information with British Columbians uh, during an impending emergency. Yesterday, we saw uh, the Premier shrug and say, and I quote, it gets wet in November, end quote. As if no one could see this disaster coming, except they did see it, with all due respect to the minister, they did see it in Alberta, and they saw it in Washington State. Washington State declared a severe weather state of emergency on Monday. British Columbia took an additional two days to declare a state of emergency in our province. This meant that folks only a couple kilometers south of the U.S. border, south of Abbotsford, had 48 hours more warning than the people of British Columbia did. That's unacceptable. Mr. Speaker, that's why shelves are empty in stores across uh, this province. This is why there are long lineups Members, at gas stations. Order, please. British, British Columbians you. are scared, they're worried, they're nervous. And it all dovetails back to this government's failure to provide adequate advance notice. So the question uh, to the minister is this. Can the minister explain why he refuses to use all of the tools that he has in his toolbox, like the alert ready uh, warning system, so that British Columbians are given the advance warning that they need, that they deserve to best prepare themselves and their families and their livelihoods for impending disaster? Minister of Public Safety. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I appreciate the question from the member. Uh, and I'll tell that member this, that every tool in the toolbox is being used to deal with this situation. We are working closely with the Retail Council, the trucking sector, transportation, in order to ensure that the goods and services that people require are there for them. The uh, situation around food, for example, uh, the suppliers tell us there is lots of supply. They are redigging their, their, uh, their transportation routes to ensure that those areas that are impacted are able to get the supplies they need. As the member well knows, many parts of this province, the transportation routes are not affected. From Kamloops, for example, where that member represents, uh, the rail line operates all the way to the east. The uh, city of Prince George, where the leader of the opposition uh, represents, the transportation corridors are open all the way to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to points east. And trucking and transportation are getting and doing everything they can to, to get the goods there. The most important thing that all of us can do, including the opposition, is to let their constituents know that hoarding is not helpful, 
that the best thing to do is to be patient and to recognize, as the private sector is making clear, as the private sector is making clear, that those supply chains and those supplies are there. And that's what's taking place. This government is doing everything it can and will continue to do everything we can. Thank you. And uh, your response uh, just demonstrates why you guys are still sitting over there. And Member for Cambridge Southampton Supplemental. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. Uh, well, you know, if, if this minister actually left this building and actually went up to the interior, if he actually did an aerial tour, if, he actually, if the Minister of Transportation wasn't sitting and doing house duty uh, through this week here and in the, little, in the little house, maybe he would see exactly what's happening out there. They would see the long lines at gas stations. They would see the fact that, that grocery store shelves are empty all over British Columbia. And so for this, for this minister to sit here and, and say that it has anything to do other than his lack of, of leadership and his government's failure is, is, I say, shame on all of them. BC's, BC's emergency warning systems are not meeting the challenges of today's natural disasters. That's on this government. All other provinces are using the alert-ready system. They're using it for tornadoes. They're using it for wildfires. They're using it for, for a, a, a range of other uh, natural disasters. We're not using it here. Did the government use the alert system uh, for the 2008 uh, devastating wildfires? No, they didn't. Did they use the alert system for the, the heat dome uh, this, uh, this summer that killed nearly 600 British Columbians? No, they didn't. Did they use the alert system for the wildfires this summer? No, they didn't. Did they use the alert system for these floods? No, they didn't. The only province in the country not to use this advanced warning system. Now let's talk about the Coquihalla Highway for a moment. This past, uh, this past Sunday, the, uh, the member from Camelot North Thompson and I, as we often do, we were heading to Victoria, we drove down the, the, the Coquihalla, we missed the slides on the Coquihalla by just a couple hours. Now I can tell you, Mr. Speaker, that the variable speed signs hadn't been changed, the speed was still 120 kilometers per hour, and all that was on the overhead message boards was a, 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 a notice of, uh, of, of, uh, to watch for pooled water, pooling water on the road, which is a very common message that we see on those signs uh, very often. There were no crews that we drove past, contrary to what the minister uh, just uh, said in a previous answer. So surely the minister doesn't expect, doesn't expect British Columbians to rely on Drive BC and, and uh, tw Drive BC's Twitter page. Surely he doesn't expect them to rely on Facebook posts while they're at the wheel, while they're driving. Mm -hmm. now here's the thing. The province is the only jurisdiction that can send a mandatory warning via tailored text messages to everyone that overrides their cell phones. <clears throat> Not local governments. Only the provincial government can do this. So my question to the minister again is this. When will the government actually use the warning systems that it has at its disposal that other jurisdictions are using to better protect and prevent, better prevent extreme weather disasters from putting the safety of British Columbians at grave risk. Minister. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Um, the province uh, is going to be using and does use uh, all of the tools at its disposal 
But the member, uh, and he raises the alert ready system, and that is an important potential tool. It is one that we have the ability to use in certain circumstances right now. Just as in 2016, when they had an opportunity. And did you? No, you did not. Through the chair. And, 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 and. Members. And what I've all. And what I've also said in this House is that we will have in place the alert ready system, and we've committed to doing that uh, for next spring. We also have the ability, and as we worked with local communities, worked with local communities to ensure that if it's needed in a particular area, as in Abbotsford the other night, we worked with them and had a text ready to hit send and to send it out. But what that member consistently, consistently forgets uh, in, uh, in his question and the impression he wants to give that somehow this is a magic solution, it's not. It requires cell, t cell, phone, tower, cell phone towers, which in many cases, as he knows on the... Members, order. Order. Mr. Thank you. And working with local communities who also have their alert systems that they use to make sure, one, that there's no duplication, and second, that they're used in a way that also doesn't cause panic, and by working with first responders and the emergency coordinations on the ground on when the appropriate time to do it. So, honourable member, we will be using next spring, next summer, the alert ready system starting in the, the central interior, but we're going to make sure that it's done right. Member for Sandwich North and Islands. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is uh, through you to the Minister of Children and Family De Development. Does the minister recognize the ugly history between MCFD and Indigenous children and families is rooted in harm and mistrust and that this scarred relationship remains to this day? Minister of Children and Family Development. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question. Um, we do recognise that for many, many decades there has been an over-intrusion of government into Indigenous families and Indigenous communities, and our government is taking steps to address that. We've changed the provincial law that enable uh, MCFD staff to be able to work closely with Indigenous communities when there's a concern about an Indigenous child. Um, social workers are able to actually approach Indigenous communities, ask if there's somebody there, um, an auntie or a, a relative, who's able to offer a safe home for that child so that children and youth can stay connected to their family, to their community and to their culture. Honourable Speaker, we've also um, increased the rate for out-of-care carers so that they receive the same financial support as foster carers. And so we've seen a significant increase in the number of Indigenous children that are in out-of-care placements rather than being brought into the government uh, child welfare system. But, Honourable Speaker, there is a lot more to do. And even with the Federal Act coming into power, uh, we know that there is a lot more to do. We are absolutely committed to uh, doing that work with Indigenous communities. Member Supplemental. 
Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And uh, I mean, I appreciate the response, and I think the minister needs to check in with some uh, within the ministry to see if the, the changes that have been put in place are actually uh, being implemented on the ground. But I am challenged, uh, Mr. Speaker, with the minister's response and how it can be squared uh, with subjecting neurodiverse Indigenous children uh, to her proposed MCFD-run hubs. The proposal will arguably deepen access barriers for Indigenous and racialized people who are disproportionately targeted by MCFD. Their families are frequently ripped apart by the consequences of systemic racism within that ministry. This system will further disadvantage Indigenous and racialized children. It creates new and deeper barriers within a system that is, by its very nature, focused on individualized and diverse community service opportunities and possibilities. Further, by moving to an MCFD-controlled and centralized hub model, the opportunities for culturally appropriate services is further reduced. Mr. Speaker, through you to the Minister of Children and Family Development, does she expect neurodiverse Indigenous children and families to feel safe accessing an MCFD-run hub? Minister. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the member for the opportunity of uh, explaining to members here that um, services for children and youth with support needs will be delivered by community, in community, and in response to the needs of the community. We actually have an advisory circle, an Indigenous circle, advising us on how we move forward to ensure that not only um, are we able to create Indigenous-led services, but that all services are culturally safe and properly informed, and that all staff have the uh, appropriate training and knowledge and experience and expertise to make sure that all services delivered in community are culturally safe and accessible. And I, uh, I would like to take this opportunity to, to inform the member that these services will be delivered by community agencies and by indigenous agencies. They will have multidisciplinary teams and have multiple points of access. Our expectation as the ministry will be that community agencies will step up in collaboration and partnership with local communities, local nations and local agencies. And the work that the ministry has done, Honourable Speaker, over the last four years has been significant. There has been a significant change in our approach to working with Indigenous communities. We have changed provincial legislation. We have changed policy and practice. And currently, we have the lowest number of Indigenous children and youth in care in 20 years. Member for Episode West. Uh, thanks, uh, Honourable Chair. We have uh, all seen the devastation uh, that has wrought uh, Sumas Prairie uh, in Abbotsford. And uh, I want to remind the government and the Minister of Agriculture uh, in the 48 hours, the crucial 48 hours leading up to the uh, tragic events that uh, befell that area Tuesday, Wednesday, um, here is what is here is what was happening two kilometers away across the border in Washington State. On Sunday morning, on the Sunday morning, American officials issued an emergency proclamation for flood risks based on the weather projections that they had at the time. On Sunday afternoon at 3.40, American officials issued a flood warning specifically for the Nooksack River. By Monday morning, 
the Americans were broadcasting record levels on the Nooksack, and shortly thereafter, the flood alert sirens in Sumas were sounding. Monday afternoon at 3.30, the Americans uh, confirmed the Nooksack was at flood stage, and the Washington state governor issued a severe weather emergency proclamation directing implementation of the state's comprehensive emergency management plan. Today and tomorrow, the farmers on Sumas Prairie are returning to clean up the carcasses of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dead animals. And I hope everyone under understands what they're saying. As they do that work, because they're resilient, they're saying to themselves, if I had had a little more time, that 48 hours would have been crucial in allowing me to save some of these animals. They didn't get that warning. The minister posted about a fundraiser and a kale recipe. But nothing. Nothing of a warning. Why didn't the minister perform what is her statutory duty and provide the same warning, the same notice to the farmers on Sumas Prairie that farmers two kilometers away got in Washington State. Minister for Public Safety. Uh, thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I uh, 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 fully appreciate the, uh, the question uh, from, the, uh, from, from the member opposite. Um, as I, he knows, and I contacted him about the situation uh, that was unfolding uh, in Abbotsford. But what I can also tell, tell him is that on that weekend, on that, on that Sunday, uh, not only were flood warnings, the, the flood situations and the stream flow advisories going out to local communities and the local communities were monitoring the situation uh, that was developing, but as he knows, that... That rain that came down so torrentially in a way that we have never seen before um, was such a dramatic event uh, that you know the rivers rose incredibly quickly and floodwaters rose incredibly quickly. Because when he talks about Sumas, um, for example, and just across the line, um, the city hall of, uh, of Sumas, Washington, was under was engulfed by five feet of water during that very same period. The reality is this, the event that happened was of an unprecedented nature. Flood warnings and stream flow advisories did go out. Obviously, uh, from this, this disaster, lessons uh, will be learned. Um, it's one of the reasons why we're doing the complete overhaul of the Emergency Program Act to recognize events like this so that we are better prepared in the future to deal with these situations. Member for Nechako Lakes. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. And today we've been talking about uh, natural disasters and the effects of that. But there's another disaster that's unfolding, and unfortunately, this is a planned disaster. 
that is happening by this NDP government. In the gallery today, in the gallery today, we've got hardworking members of our forest sector, including people like Brian Butler, the president of United Steelworkers, Local 1-1937. And Brian, people like Brian are sitting, they're waiting amid confusion and uncertainty from this minister to find out if they'll have jobs this Christmas. The minister has admitted that thousands of jobs will be lost. People like Mark and Nancy Ponting of Ponting Contracting, they poured their lives, they poured their hearts and souls into their business and supporting their employees. They and all the guests in the gallery have survived the softwood lumber battles that this government has ignored. They've survived the Great Recession. They've survived COVID. These good folks are fighters. They're proud of the forest sector. They're proud of what they do for a profession in this government or in this province. They have provided jobs and revenue to this province for decades. They have survived so much, and now they're receiving a gut punch from this government. Will this minister please stand up and explain why the minister and her government is hell-bent on attacking these hard-working families across this province? Minister of Forests, Lands and Natural Resource Operations. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And, and I want to thank the member for the question, but I too want to welcome um, Bob, Jeff, Brian, and all of the members who are here in the gallery watching this discussion today. And, and I'm really glad you're here so that I can clarify the information, the misinformation that you're hearing. I understand. <laughs> I understand your concerns. I lived through the downturn in the forest industry when 30,000 people lost their jobs in the forest industry. I understand because there was no supports for workers. There was no supports for our families. And there was no supports for communities. So I'm happy to say that even though our analysis shows there is a potential, a potential of 4,500 people potentially losing their jobs, when we implement the deferrals for the old growth strategy, this is a preliminary estimate. And unlike what happened, members, unlike what happened when 30,000 people lost their jobs, we will have supports in place. We will work with communities. We will work with unions. We will work with industry to ensure there are supports in place. And again. The 4,500 jobs that we have estimated are only, only if there are deferrals made in January. That is not going to happen. We will have time to work together. And I am saying today, I want to reach out to you. I want to work with you. We have said that before, and I will say it again. We want to work with you to ensure that we will have a sustainable, resilient forest industry for generations to come. The balance question period.